There's uh, gross disparities in how the war on drugs was applied across our country. Now we're fighting against years of brainwashing. A 16-year-old lad apprehended in the act of staging a holdup. 16 years old and a marijuana addict. Meanwhile, warfighters in my community are killing themselves at a rate of 22 a day. All this stuff, it's, it's, it made me feel like a complete piece of shit. I didn't want to live, you know what I mean? So we need academia to embrace it. We need our politicians to embrace it. We need our physician community to embrace it so that the patients win at the end of the day. The Up Life is a production of the Unprescribed Nonprofit. This show is made possible by contributions from supporters just like you. Subscribe to our channel and follow us on social. We are The Unprescribed. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to The Up Life, the show that inspires us to live life to the fullest. I'm your host, Steve Elmore, founder of The Unprescribed Nonprofit. And I am Sharissa, his co-host. I am the CEO and founder of Ouija Code, and I'm a proud woman veteran. Today, we're joined by Kelly Perez, CEO and co-founder of Cannabis Doing Good and co-founder of Cannabis Impact Fund. Kelly is passionate about social justice and is an experienced policy expert in racial justice, community health, and health equity. Kelly, welcome. Glad you could join us. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for doing this for everyone. Appreciate it. So it, my story is, is I'm a veteran, Sharissa as well, and we've both been through trauma, and we both are activists in suicide prevention. And uh, in my experience, I found healing in cannabis uh, when I made my film Unprescribed. In my journey, I, I, I interviewed veterans all across this country and everywhere we went, their stories were all the same. They were all given these giant bottles of pills. And the idea behind it was polytrauma, means multiple injuries, is fed by polypharma, which treats every single symptom. And so myself, I was on a, a drug called Effexor, which was an antidepressant, anti-anxiety, and it made me numb, but numb as in my emotions. But it also, it, it stopped me from, uh, well, it caused a whole bunch of other problems, blood pressure, cholesterol, weight gain, insomnia, and a number of things. And I've just gotten off of that medicine just last month and, and cannabis helped me get through it. And all these vets, and I know that I owe that fact to everybody in this country who served that told me that cannabis saved their lives. And today that's what we want to hear, hear about your story and how cannabis helped save your life. And from what I understand, you, you've been through some personal trauma too. And so we're connecting the, the civilian community with the military community to say that trauma is trauma is trauma. Doesn't matter if it came from the battlefield or on the streets of America. And so we wanna uplift our, our audience by sharing stories that no matter how hard it gets, we can get through it, right? Absolutely, so, absolutely. So Kelly, let's, let's start with you. Let's get right into your story. Um, can you tell us where you were, where you are, where you're going and how things have changed for you? Uh, I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, you are a go-getter. I've read your bio, you've done some incredible things and I, I can't wait to hear your story so our listeners can be inspired and motivated and encouraged by you. Thank you. And there's so many stories, right? <laughs> um, now I have CPTSD, so um, complex and it's I'm a social worker by training and it it took me a little while to see what I was actually seeing. So the trauma that I'm going to focus on is a brain injury. And okay. my brain injury was back about eight years ago, actually seven something years ago. It's almost exactly the same length of time as my business, because what I didn't know at the time is that this crafting this business, but with my for-profit and my nonprofit have been my brain injury recovery program. But I didn't know that. I couldn't know that. So my cannabis story I didn't know I was crafting it as it was happening. I had been 
a policy advisor at the governor's office in Colorado back in 2012 when we passed adult use cannabis, Amendment 64. And I could see a good process around Amendment 64 in terms of um, revenue, really. Some of the different pieces were very well done, but I did not see any racial justice. I saw no impact that was positive on community and it had been written already. I couldn't impact that. What I could do is take what we had and see that implementing pieces of legislation required to make it go and say, we have to do an excellent job here. I don't see anything about mass incarceration and I don't see anything about the war on drugs. And that's what I care about. But I was there to create the office of early childhood. So it was a little outside of my area. Gratefully, I had crafted our prescription drug abuse prevention effort, which we were very early on the opioid game in Colorado. And I could see through the data that we were losing about a thousand people a year. Wow. And I pulled together doctors and lawyers and all kinds of folks and saying, here's what our data say. Can you help me solve it? And people from the medical community were like, don't tell us what to do. Like, good thing. Couldn't, don't know. I'm a health equity person, but I have no idea. But I do know that we are stakeholders in this problem. So the reason I'm referring to that is that I had some credibility at the governor's office around public health in particular. So I could say, we're doing this governor and, and the governor didn't wanna do it. None of his cabinet members wanted to do it except for revenue. We're doing it, the people voted on it. Here's what the New York Times is going to say if we don't do an excellent job. And so I created the first office of marijuana coordination in the world and did pull together a very smart and well executed program to do what was said in the law. But as you all know, there was nothing in there to create a racially equitable system to, to, to recognize the historical impact of on-purpose policy and how it not only impacts the people that were caught up in the drug war because they were sought out, but whole communities, infrastructure, black communities, brown communities, native communities, whole community care infrastructure destroyed by political disregard mm -hmm. over policing with a racialized lens. So we weaponized this thing that Nixon said, let's get the Let's get the anti-drug protesters. Let's get the blacks. Let's get the Mexicans. Let's make sure they don't go together and fight for real justice. So we've always been in this together, right? The people who are suffering, who didn't even know they were treating themselves, the folks who wanted more freedom, the folks who had no other choice. So I have felt so grateful to get to work in this space. What I didn't know is that I had this very personal story because when your brain injured, you don't know you're, I mean, I knew I would say to my husband, I'm not doing that. Well, he's like, you're doing great, babe. My underwear are on the outside of my pants and I'm trying to go outside and I know <laughs> that is not allowed. No. <laughs> that is not recommended. Yeah. So such a long, and, and because I was so injured, I had to relearn how to read above an 11 year old. I had to learn how to drive. Mm -hmm. And I'd been a policy advisor for a governor. And all of a sudden my identity was very different, but I found this opportunity because I saw our communities were not going to benefit for the, from the law. And I started a company that could blend community, positive community impact with what a company, a cannabis company had to do to operate. Our communities felt like they were being taken advantage of. And I could say, wait a second, this was policy that they didn't craft to come and take advantage of you. And so a, a long story short, I have barely talked about the brain injury. The brain injury was April, 2015. We started our company, August, 2015. Wow. Wow. Can right? And my, my business partner, Courtney Mathis, who is a superstar, uh, we didn't know each other. So what was amazing about that is that she couldn't look at me with eyes that knew who I used to be. Yeah. She accepted me as I was, yeah. didn't know that I was deeply impaired. Yeah. Wow. And so now I can see how much progress I've made. They, they told me after two years, I wouldn't make any more progress. Mm. All my cognitive recovery stuff was so depressing. They said, after two years, you won't make progress. I am definitely still making progress. 
and cannabis was recommended to me by my husband. I um, was a casual consumer. I was pretty nervous actually even taking the job at the governor's office. Mm-hmm. So how often do you drug <laughs> <laughs> asking for a friend, but you know, I didn't understand all, you know, how magic moves, how spirit moves. And so that brain injury was a very significant head trauma, but I, it's probably my fourth or fifth. So that was a, a snowboarding. I knocked myself out. I was out for three minutes. I somehow skied down the mountain, but I, and I did not get good care. Right. And so. traumatic brain injury, TBI, I'm sorry to interject, but I can personally relate to that. I have a, a hole in the side of my head, the size of a 50 cent piece uh, from when I had got hit by a car on a bicycle at a young age. And then I've been in multiple car accidents and on top of that. And so you can see where that trauma triggers so many things and you to have multiple injuries too. I'm like, I'm right there with you. So tell us how you overcame or tell us about more. About I mean, I, I love that question. And it's like, still it's meaning making, right? I mean, that story, like, oh, I have a very personable cannabis story that is not just making the world better in terms of social justice, which is what I've always done. It's actually me personally. I have to, this is how I've recovered. This is how I've cared for myself. And mm-hmm. I had to get over all the same like bull that we're all say no to drugs and all that. I grew up in a predominantly white community in a white family without people that looked like me or could reflect the beauty of being black that just right. didn't exist they didn't they weren't racist right but they weren't actively anti-racist which is what it takes to love really love people right. so my early my early traumas you know I just I didn't know you know my brain injury did something to make some things very clear to me that were not so clear Mm-hmm. And I'd always been searching for service. I moved to New York City to do social work from a town of two traffic lights in Florida. I wanted to, to, you know, I helped prostitutes clean their needles. Like I wanted to go where it was the hardest that you could do it. Not understanding that this kind of proving worth and value is deeply connected to trauma. Right. Right. That that common something told us, some event brought me to a place where I didn't think I had value. So I was constantly hustling for value and I still have patterns of hustle and striving that I'm really being very um, intentional about. No, thank you. I don't need to prove anything. I need to be intimate relationship with myself and care for myself. So Kelly, let's get into how the trauma actually really impacted your life. I mean, I know you keep speaking of trauma and you had several brain injuries and things of that nature, but for our listeners, what does that mean as far as how did it impact your life, relationships and things of that nature? So I think I really kept to myself. I think I knew other people intimately. Part of that was racial, part of that, you know, but I think I knew I was a very good friend to people, but I didn't know that being sharing who I was, sharing what was true in my life because I was a single kid too. I didn't have brothers and sisters to relate to. And I, my, the way I worked it is that I decided to kind of run things in my community, be the president of everything, because I had a very clear choice point in high school. Like you could go that way with the druggies who I love now, or this <laughs> way, right? And my guide said, go this way. And I needed that. Um, and so I didn't know what college was. My family told me I wasn't smart enough to go to college, mm-hmm. but I I had full rides and, and my friends were going. I was like, I, I think I'm going to do that. So I think it kept me very isolated, but I had deep relationships with nature and spirit that were outstanding that I'm still really kind of working my way back to remembering who I am. So the trauma first showed its face very, very blatantly in New York City doing social work, 
running support groups for um, folks who are finding out that they HIV positive. Now they all look like me, I'm in East Harlem. And at the time AIDS was not, women weren't included in the definition. So I'm looking and I'm facilitating 15 women who look just like me and they're finding out they're HIV positive because the men in their lives are getting mandatorily tested because they're going to jail. I'm working for a funded program that I'm like, this is what the data say, 10 women are testing positive for every one man. And I reached out to the funder of that. And I said that, and they said, if you tell anyone, we'll pull your funding. Mm. So that was a huge heart impact. Yeah. Yeah. After that, I started blacking out because it was too much to bear. The women looked like me. They had the same stories, not the prison part, but they had early sexual assault experiences that put them, the, them in these relationships that they were way too good for. So I started blacking out. Mm. That is a very in deep impact. And I was lucky to have friends and support. And I ended up moving out to Colorado because my biological father was here. I didn't know him or my brother. And spirit said, you need to know where you come from. Right. So that was 30 years ago. So that was a pretty big impact. And there's been so many over time. The, the diagnosis for CPTSD did not come for quite some time. My brain injuries had a couple of iterations. Um, things happen like I'm a paddleboarder on, on rapids. Mm. I'm, a, I'm a, an athlete. I'm a big athlete. I've been an athlete all my life. That's why I've knocked my head around so many times. <laughs> right. A paddleboard on class three rapids, which is very intense rapids. And all of a sudden my legs are shaking uncontrollably. And I'm like, guys, guys, we're really good at this. We have the skill to do this. And I should have laid down on my board, but I didn't because it was, didn't even occur to me you could lay down. And so a, a couple of hours after that, I start, it's a very hard to identify, right? It happens for you personally, so many different ways. For what happens for me is in my inner, my most intimate relationship, my spouse, he said, was told somebody a story about me with leftovers. I mean, the smallest thing was nothing, making fun of me for leftovers. And I turned to him and I said, do not diminish me. Mm. He would never diminish me. But what happens is that I get in this hyper um, fight position. Yes. And I, I, mo I show, right, you know it. I know, I can relate. It's a, it's a fight or flight. It's our instinct. And I've, in fact, thanks to Teresa, if you don't mind me interjecting at this point, keep that thought. Her company, We Decode, has a, is a DNA test that can check for all these genome indicators. And I learned things like I might have ADHD for one thing. But what I, what, besides what I learned that I didn't know was the confirmations of things I knew. And there was something called a fear decay rate. Mm -hmm. And I never heard of that. And I realized what, for me, it when that fight or flight triggers and you're up here and you're not in your mindset and you, you, your loved ones and everything it takes a long time to come down and and you try to when you're self-aware you, you 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 that's good and you 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 have to tell yourself you need to calm down and unfortunately i can tell my friends and family that maybe i just give me a while and please but i i can't stop myself from attacking them verbally and things like that because my whole system is wired and it's a survival yeah. skill. Right. That's right. And it saved your life. And, and Steve, what's so interesting to me is the new research that we, it's not fight or flight only that research was all done on men. Mm -hmm. in the, 70s. the research we have now it's fight, flight, fawn, or freeze. Really? Yes. All four. Yeah. Cause the all freeze four. is what I used to do as yep. a young kid who got bullied. Yep. Freeze. So we have all these, I mean, we're just, I have the truth bumps all over because 
Mm-hmm. That's such important information that we yeah. don't know. I mean, I got some information pregnant with my first child around, I did hypnobirthing because if you think birth is an emergency, if you believe all the stories told, all the screaming, uh, you, see, you are going to have an automatic response rather yeah. than actually bringing all the blood flow to the places that it needs, mm-hmm. that I am a continuation of thousands and thousands of years that I have all that I need. And so we have all this new information to help us understand that, oh, this is a lizard brain, the most primary primitive part of my brain, but we have this, this new part that we were right. just getting to exercise. And my injury was here. Wow. Right there in the frontal lobe, huh? Right between my eyes. I've got a little Harry Potter scar. I'm so lucky. Yeah. So yeah. lucky to not be disfigured. Can I ask you something? It's, it's sort of going off subject, but it's on. And it's a new avenue that I'm, I'm pursuing now. And it's psilocybin. Mm-hmm. And I just recently learned about how things like alcoholism or other traumas can ice, they can destroy or, or shrink the connecting signal lines that go from our frontal cortex back to those other parts. And I had my first experience just this past month with psilocybin and it was like a reset switch. And I believe when I connect the science that I read to my experience, it, what they're saying is it actually helps grow new connecting signal matter and it's allowing our prefrontal cortex to actually talk to our other systems because my struggle for the last year and a half or the three years with COVID have been, my conscious is telling me don't panic, but my rest of my body's not. We're like, no, I'm going to just. So is, um, is a study of psilocybin something that's in your, in your peripheral right now? And is it, you know, it, it is, it's interesting. My business partner um, is a chair person of a board called SPORE. And in Colorado, we have um, more than decrim, but a regulated system on the ballot. I have a ton of concerns because this is ancient medicine that comes from Mexican women who brought it over. That's why we have it. It's sacred. And I'm nervous about being mainstreamed. For me, what's cool in my personal experience is that I never tried any, I grew up on a commune with like drugs and alcohol all around me with young parents. So I didn't touch anything because I was very nervous about it. And the expectations for me as a black woman were not good. Yeah. Like maybe you could be a postal worker. You'll probably be pregnant by your age. You know, you know, just the yeah. people. Yeah. So look, I'm not that there's anything wrong with being a postal worker, but I also have other talents. Yeah. Um, so psilocybin and I like drugs. Like I like expanded consciousness. I am a very curious person. I don't go to the edge. Mm-hmm. I go to the edge, but not over the edge. So my experience with, um, MDMA and things were with doctors who are my friends and colleagues because I was part of a rave movement. I came, I worked in an acid house in London in the early 90s. And when I came back, MDMA was still legal. It was used for marriage counseling. Mm-hmm. So the folks that were in my life had access to it and we had access to it. Mm-hmm. So I've been very comfortable with these substances and I've never, I'm not a drinker. I don't drink at all. Um, and so I think that it can have revolutionary impact on people. I believe some of the stories that that mushrooms actually are connected to our evolution, that we are related in a way, that the the, the shaman and the medicine keepers, the people that took fire, yeah. wrapped fire in a mushroom. That's how yeah. we get it places. Yeah. That, that technology changed us. Mm-hmm. But my experiences were so early. It's not, they're not gonna have any revolutionary impact on who I, they probably did when I was 20, but now I'm 50 something. So my mind is so open, I could fall out, right? Mm-hmm. And I want people to have access to all healing modalities. What I'm very nervous about when we create a regulated system like we did with cannabis is that 
the folks, I know the folks who are moving these initiatives forward and they're not bad people, but they're wealthy white guys who have the time and the position to do this, who will absolutely benefit from their law firms and their investments of um, patenting sacred medicine. That is gross to me. The people who I know in community doing sacred ceremony, who've done ceremony for their entire lives, when those are the folks that will be at risk, right? Not these guys. They will make all the money. They're creating an economic engine, even if they couch it in, oh, people are going to have access to healing modalities. Actually, what will happen is that the system will create prescriptive authority and barriers to accessing care. Mm-hmm. No, it's not, it's not going to heal your mental illness. It could be a tool used with some other healing and we heal collectively, mm-hmm. we heal together. So um, I'm, I, I'm excited about the studies that you're seeing out of Johns Hopkins and Columbia. I'm very excited and very nervous about, I know what happens with extractive capitalism. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, Kelly, that's actually Earth why- impact. Have... Earth impact. So going back to the cannabis, that's exactly why we have you on the show. Uh, Ashley introduced us because she's well-connected in the cannabis industry. And we had Stephanie Shepard from Last Prisoner Project here. And I'm a child of the 80s and the dare. And, and I found out basically everything you said has everything with the with Nixon and the drug schedule has all been steeped in racism. And the things that we were discussing with, with Stephanie is how can we have have people glorifying this medicine, making money off of it while other people are still in jail? So I do want to talk more about that expungement and decriminalization because I understand you play a role in that, or at least you're connected with those with, with people in that community. So, so I think um, we're gonna we're gonna give Sharice a chance to 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 ask one more question. Then we're gonna take a break, and then let's go real deep into it, Sharice. Um, yeah. So Kelly, I want to talk about your healing, right? I know when I sat in my own PTSD, I had to figure out what worked for me, and so. When did you sit in your trauma and said, okay, I need to figure this out, figure out what works for me, what didn't work for me, and how you just process that all? Because I think listeners want to understand that. They may not relate to your trauma and the type of trauma you have, but what they can relate to is how to overcome. So walk us through that process of you sitting with it and deciding for yourself, what is the first step, the second step, the third step to get you where you are today? Thank you for that question, Teresa. Um, you know, the blacking out in New York City back in the early '90s that was pretty intense, and it yeah. really—it was a spirit. It was a spiritual crisis. My heart was broken that God let bad things, such bad things, happen. Yeah. And I thought I was so clo- connected to spirit, and I, when I realized the truth of my experience, it really broke my heart. And it took me a long time before I could, you know, be in a place because it was a spiritual crisis before I knew it was a physiological crisis. Yeah. Brain injury made it change over time to be something that could never be ignored. Um, but that kind of recognizing that I felt like I had forgiven spirit, but I hadn't really invited us back into an intimate relationship. And really that's very recent for me. And in terms of what you do and how you know you do it, I mean, I would walk into anything spiritual and tears would just fall down my face. As a child, I went to every church or, or play. It was only churches where I grew up to find God. And I was never, I was never touched. It never felt right to me. And I've always done things like I grew up on the beach. So I've always had this like intense relationship that showed me I was part of something gigantic, which I think mushrooms help people understand. I think cannabis do, too, does too, that we're some part of something bigger and that I have, I came here for something that only I can bring. 
And it's taken a really, it's taken a really long time to recognize that that kind of love that I give naturally, I have to give to myself or it isn't even real when I give it. Right. And so I've gone to plenty of therapy. I've done lots of things, talk therapy. I can talk my way out of in about three minutes, make sure the person thinks I'm fine mm-hmm. as really being vulnerable and saying, no, I can leave. I'm still doing it with yeah. a, a, with a, a doctor around my neck. I want to leave and have him feel good about our interaction. I'm like what? No, Dr. No. Dr. A, I'm suffering. Yeah. Yeah. I need help and I'm suffering and I, I don't want to be a victim. I don't want to whine. But mm-hmm. God, if I'm not truth, true with what's happening here, we're not going to fix it. So that level of honesty and intimacy in relationship with ourselves and knowing when you're alone, what's it like for you? Yeah. Do you like the company that you keep when you're alone? And if you don't, what is it going to take to heal that relationship? Yeah. And I, I share what you just mentioned about the spirituality piece. You know, I'm a single, I was a single mom of twin daughters and I came back from um, Afghanistan in 2011. And I remember taking my kids to college, my twin daughters to college. And I came back to my condo and I was the only one in that condo by myself and my little dog, Roxy. And I will never forget sitting there on the couch. And I felt exactly what you felt. I was like, why are these emotions? Why are these feelings? It was like my PTSD came back and I started having flashbacks. I was in the fetal position in my living room. Mm-hmm. And when I woke up, it was dark. My little doggy was nibbling on my toes. And I think she probably got me out of that PTSD episode. But I felt like God had protected me from 2005 till 2011. And then now that my brain was not focused on the girls and all of these feelings came back and I was hurting and I was depressed. And I'm like, God, why did you send these back to me? Put them, take them away. I don't want them. And I felt like he had failed me. I'm like, I don't want these feelings. I don't want to deal with these feelings. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to process that by myself alone, I couldn't call anybody. I didn't have the girls. I didn't have any friends. And I had to still go to work every day. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is the loneliest feeling because I can't tell anybody. And like you said, I went to therapy like you did to make the therapist feel good. I can talk my way out of everything. So I left those sessions still not healed, still not having any type of options to be able to go home and feel good about myself and not drink, drink myself to death or throw myself off of a building. So I had to just sit down with God one day, cry my eyes out and say, look, I can't do this. You have to take this pain away. You have to be in charge of this. And I had to just give it to him. And it took a while. And so I understand the intimacy with whoever you want to call your spirit, your God, because it really was the one thing I had to rely on because I had nothing else to rely on. And you have to depend on yourself to find that inner strength to reach out to God, though. And that's the problem. You said it right there with the therapy. You have to be honest with yourself. I know after my suicide attempt, alcohol was involved and I had to go to John or uh, Walter Reed and go through all kinds of clinic psych analysts and everything and they had alcohol counselors there and I've been in the Air Force long enough to protect my job I know what the numbers are for how many drinks is too many and I wrote off I checked out yes I have between two to three drinks a day every three you know two or you know two or three days max mm-hmm. whatever I mm-hmm. and it's not going to heal And I just realized that now. Well, and that's what we're talking, like the level of courage that it takes to sit with your feelings. And there's nothing in our culture that says do it. 
Yeah. Every instinct we have, including our fight, flight, freeze, fawn, says run away. Yeah. Your gut is wrong there. Yeah. Well, you that's sit a- in those feelings, you sit and you have the courage to feel them and they can move through. Absolutely. Well, leave them. Yeah. Well, that, that's a good segue that I want to pick up on. We have to take a, a quick commercial break right now. But when we want, when we come back, let's get into that, finding that inner strength and, and supporting not only ourselves, but supporting others. All right. And we'll be right back. All right, and we're back from our break. Thank you. Hey, Kelly, let's continue the conversation we were having before the break. Let's go into, again, your healing and how you've chosen to heal through your own trauma and some of the some of the things that you've been doing in order to do that. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, I've had, my family's been very impacted by hurricanes. Uh, the Hurricane Charlie, my mom was here with me in the morning I helped me have a baby. Um, the baby had been born in trouble. She, we got through that trouble. Five days later, my mom was flying to, back to Florida. I saw her in the morning. I said, I just can't thank you enough. And she died that afternoon in Hurricane oh. Charlie. So I'm a single mom with three kids. I felt it walking to the park. A neighbor said, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not okay, but I don't know what happened. And I found out an hour later that my mom had been killed instantly. Mm. So that... I was in a, not a good marriage, three kids single, and my mom was my family. And I thought I had more family, but really my mom was my family. So it was almost like I lost her sisters, her parents, because it was complicated having a black child in an upper middle class white family. And my mom was doing a lot of dancing behind the scenes that I didn't know about. Right. The next year, Hurricane Katrina, my, my family in New Orleans was devastated by Katrina. So lots of so many different kinds of trauma. And I I say that because I was really on my knees after my mom died. And there was a poem that really spoke to me. It's by Ariah Mountain Dreamer. It's called The Invitation. Definitely check it out. It was like my theme. And I'm an artist. I'm a poet. I sing. I do art. And there's a line in it that says, you know, after a day of a night of weeping on the ground, basically I'm paraphrasing. can you get up and do what needs to be done for the children? And it hit me in my heart so strong that yes, I am doing what needs to be done for the children. I'm barely making it, but I'm doing what needs to be done for the children. So I went, took my kids to school and spoke to a woman there, another single mom. And she, and I said, I really need to write. I feel like I need to write. And she said, oh, my friend's starting this women's poetry program. You should call her. I said, okay, I go home that day and on my spouse's um, 
dresser was this woman's card, Catherine Thorne O'Neill. Mm-hmm. I called her and I said, your card came to me through divine inspiration. I don't know why I'm supposed to call you, but I'm supposed to call you. She says, I do workshops for youth in poetry, but I'm starting the first one for women on Thursday. Would you like to join? So I did that. It's called Art from Ashes. And I did that program for about five years. And what mattered so much about it is that you would have to do three minute prompted writing without any thinking, right? You just write. And then you read what you wrote with the prompt. And I fell in love with that person who wrote those things. And I thought to myself, oh my God, she needs a friend. He's so intense and sweet and deep, but for some reason she wasn't me. Yeah. And then I realized that's me. That's the part of me that doesn't analyze the part of me that just gets it out. And that started a journey of being, recognizing that I can feel the depths of despair and live because I can offer myself the kind of care I would offer someone that I love to a suffering. Can't I be someone that I love? Yeah. Is, is that how you got into social work or is that before or after or did you? I was already a social help? worker. Yeah. I mean, I think when you have a lot of trauma and you're trying to com- figure out why is life so complicated. Um, I think I, I know I wanted to be a primate biologist first. <laughs> okay. Asked how messed up people were. And I was like, the primates aren't going to make it if we can't fix the people. The planet won't make it. Absolutely. As this is a, one of the ways that people make change individual healing, community healing. There's a lot that we can do. And it's all about our healing because we're at this special time that we've all chosen to be here at a very difficult time because we have the capacity to be strong enough to heal. Someone told me I wasn't worthy. Someone told me I was stupid. Someone told me I should be ashamed. Feel those things in your body and they're just not who you are. Absolutely. I am the pond. Those feelings are like fish. And they can swim through and I can still stay the pond. And I do a lot of things to practice being a pond. It's not easy. I've got a whole schedule, yeah. but you know, you don't have to believe your thoughts. The ones that are telling you that you're not good. Those right. are. Lies. Oh, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm blessed. I, I'm worried, married to my wife, Tiffany. She's a woman of color and I'm a strong supporter about women empowerment. And one of the things all the time I'm overhearing my wife raise my children, right? My two girls my daughter Olivia is always saying sorry and my wife always tells her don't say sorry don't say sorry you you, you didn't do something wrong and it's about you know you don't need to apologize have that confidence to say you know you can do wrong you don't have to be sorry correct it mm-hmm. right yeah absolutely so, and it's courage to do that it takes right. so much courage to say I said something really stupid yeah I feel ashamed and I'm teaching people in my work to be shame resilient and to, you know, be brave and to have the courage to feel your feelings. So then we can come back up to the part of our brain that can make decisions Absolutely. rather than just run or fight or break down or run away or hide or just keep secret shame inside that is not. Because our fear of failure is what stops us from being great. And you know what Brene Brown says about that is that <laughs> it's actually our fear of joy. Uh, you know, mm, I, I love her, by the way, <laughs> I can go on to that subject. In <laughs> yeah, deep I love in depth. Her. So listen, let's, let's talk about uh, cannabis doing good and how you're helping the community around you find that strength. Tell us a little bit more about that organization and what you do. My lovely dog just unplugged my computer. So if I don't plug us back in, you're going <laughs> to, we'll pause for this. So interested in being helpful. <laughs> so 
Cannabis doing good. Um, as I said, we started in community, figuring out how could cannabis companies contribute to what the good was happening in community. And those things always bucketed out racial justice, environmental sustainability, and community benefit. Good. If you do those things, those things are actually business strategies to retain employees, be brand, have brand loyalty, um, move through the regulatory structure in cannabis that is very difficult. So to, we made a business case for doing corporate social responsibility in cannabis. We crafted that. We call it cannabis social responsibility because you need to do these things in order to operate. Why not really do these things? Because we have an opportunity to build a sector from scratch. And with it has all of the bull of extractive capitalism, but it also has this creative spark, this healing spark, this connective spark that's there. And our story is historically anti-black racism and the weaponization of cannabis to hurt families. Yes. So that is our story. And it's not a great story. I feel very proud and what an honor to get to do the things that matter to me and you all too, to take that story and make it something that we're going to say, we took a really crap story, but we helped folks find their healing. Yeah. Help folks do the right thing in business. We try to make it easy. So we have a racial equity self-assessment that companies can take to see how they're doing because folks don't know how to enter into anti-racism. Like, what is that? People talk about diversity, equity, inclusion all the time, but often people are using those words to not have to say race or yeah. black, mm -hmm. right? And so those are metrics that you would use to know if, what you are, if your interventions are working. Those are not the end game, which is why we spent $8 billion in typical industry to move the needle and nothing's changed. If you actually can focus on the problem and you deal with anti-racism, we can look very clear-eyed that Mr. Floyd's death, rest his soul, gave people understanding of that these are interconnected systems. They are not about us interpersonally. Yes, people could be nicer, but that's not how we end racialized systemic extractive capitalism. Like that is going to take oh, all of this was crafted on purpose. Yep. Mm -hmm. We don't have to do the GI Bill and redlining or the 2008 mortgage crisis or the way that we're funding cannabis businesses now or the way that psilocybin funding is going to happen. We don't have to do that. We could choose something different. Right. And so we get to do that inside of companies, move them, let them assess themselves and do better. And when they're doing well, we badge them with the cannabis doing good badge so that folks out there can see, oh, these are companies that are not perfect, good. that are making progress around being racially just, environmentally sound and bidding, benefiting the community as demonstrated by these metrics. And, and it's not a perfect thing, right? You no. can have a great employee culture and something changes and then you've got to loop back around. So it's rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat because our aim is we want people to come and bring their gifts. You know, we want to take this once in a lifetime opportunity to build something that, that can heal the planet, communities, ourselves, and build a community of other people who want that too. So that's what Cannabis Doing Good does. And then I have a nonprofit cannabis impact fund that raises money from cannabis to fund the movement for black lives, because it's actually hard for cannabis to fund a nonprofit, as you probably know. Mm -hmm. um, and so we fund Hood Incubator, Minorities for Medical Marijuana, Color of Change, and Bail Project, because we wanted organizations um, and want Black Features Lab, which is Alicia Garza's policy outfit to try to do all this on a policy level. So we take money from cannabis and fund these efforts, racial justice efforts inside of cannabis and outside of cannabis, because movements need to be interconnected in order to be powerful. While cannabis is building itself economically, let's not lose these opportunities to build a more just sector. And the thing is, is that there's money on the table there. It, people don't know how to do it. So they don't do it because it's hard and it's never been done. But if not us, then who? Yeah.
Absolutely, absolutely. So we're, we're about to wrap up here a little bit, Kelly. So, but before you go, I want you to tell us what is next for you? I mean, you're doing a lot already, but um, do you have anything brewing, anything going on in the next couple of months, next year, 2023 is right around the corner. I see on um, LinkedIn doing <laughs> stuff all the time. I know. So, so tell, tell us, us what, what's next for you and what you're doing. Well, I want to get, you know, very kind of simplified and continue doing our racial equity self-assessment. We have an environmental self-assessment coming out. So you really want these tools in the hands of people who can use them and get help doing better without feeling like you're going to get called out. We call people into this. It, as I said, it's never been done. So I want that to keep running, obviously, but be really kind of narrow in what we do, not try to do so much because there are other things that I need to do um, as well as teaching. I'm part of founder teacher at a yoga cooperative that is BIPOC run and operated. We're called Satya. And we are all about providing healing to ourselves as well as community members and an economic engine that runs. So it's a cooperative. I'm fascinated with like, okay, how can we make this economic engine go and provide healing across the world for folks who don't necessarily think yoga is for them? Right. right. Yoga is for us. And it is one of those, it's an eight branch system. It's not just the asana, right? It's breathing and diet. And so I am so grateful to have a practice. And I, I practiced as a kid because my mom was one of those weirdos that carried around the biography of a yogi. But I <laughs> it was yoga. And so I continue to do that practice for myself. And I really want these healing technologies that are thousands of years old in everybody's hands. So along with your plant-based medicine, your me you have your meditation and your pranayama and your prayers and your intention and feeling your feelings and really asking yourself, what is it that you need? And I'm in deep reflection about what is it that I need and what is coming up for me is that while I like to work in these very high systems sometimes, I also really like to be with the prostitutes who are walking around in the city who need to know how to clean their needles because- all policy is are good ideas that scale because they make people's lives better. And yeah. if they don't do that, then they're worth nothing. Yeah. And we've got some very extreme things. Our planetary, that the dynamic of racism is the exact dynamic of us believing we dominate the planet, right? right. Our healing collectively depends on us healing individually mm -hmm. with others. Well, with that, before we go, what advice do you have for our audience to help uplift them? That you're worth it that you have chosen, you are the hero of your story and you may need to be a victim for a while, that you may need to honor and really honor all your hurts and your pains and that's okay and sit in it, but don't stay there because life is short and our ancestors did not struggle and strive so that we could suffer. They had no idea what would be available to us and it is all available to us. So let go of the expectations and then just put your hand on your heart and say, it's okay, sweet girl or sweet man. <laughs> just, just know that you're doing the best that you can and that you're worth it. You're Excellent. absolutely worth it. Every one of us are. Well, Sharisa and I are both veterans and we're not going to do it for script. You do you. But Sharisa has this thing where she it has everybody take an oath and raise their hand. So Sharisa. Yeah, Kelly, can you do me a favor? Um, can you take this oath with me and raise your right hand, right? I trust you, girl. So I'm going to yeah, do girl, it. raise your right hand now. I'm not having you enlisten to the military no. anymore. We're done with that. <laughs> raise your right hand. And I want you to say your name and say, I'm living the up life. Hmm. My I, name is. My name is Kelly Perez and I am living the up life. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kelly, for being here today. I was so empowered by your story. It was so enlightening, so encouraging. And like I said to you yesterday, I don't need to straighten up your crown, my beautiful friend. Your crown is already sitting nice and high up there on yes. your head. And, and your, your story is so courageous. And I hope you feel empowered by everything that you're doing and the work that you're doing in the community. Um, I see you, so I'm, I'm sure a lot of other people are seeing you as well. So keep up the fight, keep doing what you're doing. And um, again, continue to live the up life. Thank you for joining us today, Kelly. We really appreciate the strength and encouragement you give to others. That does it for this episode. To you, our audience, we wish you peace and encourage you to live life to its fullest. Live life unprescribed, live the up life. And that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, my uh, airplane went over. My That's all the time we have for this episode. The Up Life is produced and directed by Steve Elmore. This show is made possible by the help of volunteers from the unprescribed nonprofit and supporters like you. The Up Life is part of the Alive Podcast Network. Live life unprescribed. Live the Up Life. The Unprescribed Inc. is a 501c3 charitable organization. You can make a tax-deductible contribution by visiting theunprescribed.org slash donate.html. Become a patron. Visit patreon.com slash theunprescribed and follow us on social media at theunprescribed.